Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So this is it. The second and last part of our journey into Paradise Lost. This is a little less structured than our usual episodes, but what it lacks in organization, it makes up for in personal reactions, digressions on the theological weirdness of the text, and discussions of the way the text has had an afterlife in poetry in English. And, of course, there's ontological epistemological angst thrown in. So sit back, relax, and dig into sin. And if you're online, check us out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook at The Cannonball Podcast and on Twitter at Cannonball Pod. The Cannonball is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Check out some of the other podcasts on the network, like the History of Egypt podcast, where Dominic Perry walks the listener through, well, ancient Egypt. The podcast is really extensive, covering not just events and kings, but religious festivals, economics, and other civilizational matters to give a full view of what ancient Egyptian life was like. One last note, if you're in the New York area and need reading and writing tutoring, let me know. I have a tutoring business on the side and a newborn, so I'm looking for a few more clients. If you need some help, send an email to claudemoink at gmail.com. That's C-L-A-U-D-E-M-O-I-N-C at gmail.com. I can also produce literary lectures on demand. I'm not entirely certain what situations would call for that, but for some quality literary infotainment, hit me up. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempts to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Claude Meyer and Goozer. With me, as always, is my co-host, Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how you doing? Uh, pretty pretty good. Um, I, I got to tell you, I got uh, – I, I, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. I, I, I just feel it's fair to let the listeners know I ate too much fried chicken today. Uh, so my, my tummy <laughs> is a little flopping around. Um but you know what? We're professionals on this podcast. We, we we do it for not only for love of the game, but for love of the listener. I'm going to power through 
And uh, just, you know, word of warning, uh, if, if uh, your recipe calls for some cooked chicken and you're feeling lazy and you're going to pick up a rotisserie chicken, but they didn't have any ready yet because you got to the store too early, but they still have fried chicken ready to go. So you get the fried chicken to substitute the chicken that's going in the casserole and you just decide to just eat the rest of the bucket of fried chicken. I, I would caution against it, I guess is all I'm saying. You know, learn, <laughs> learn, learn from my mistakes. <laughs> well, how are you so doing, it's, man? It's the... <laughs> It's the pride of believing that your your stomach can handle that, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. It's a very Miltonian um, ailment I have right now. Oh Lord! Well, uh, we're we're back and we're taking on the we're taking on Paradise Lost for the second time. We tried the first time. We got uh, I guess halfway through what we wanted to do, mm-hmm. and now we're going to continue and sort of finish up with a deeper analysis of the poem itself. Yeah, so um, if the, um, the first I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say so if um if this is your uh your first time listening, um you'll probably want to go back and listen to the first part of our Paradise Lost uh I guess mini series here these two because that's where we sort of do the uh the, like the plot summary or synopsis because uh from here on it, we're just kind of we're going to be kind of scattershot and in classic cannonball fashion. But if you if you want if you want that kind of hook to hang your analysis on at home, uh, listen to the first episode first. But uh, yeah, let's let's get it going, man. Yeah. All right. So we we covered the synopsis more or less, and we covered the the context and some of the broader background. And a couple of episodes ago, you and Ben covered the the idea of puritanism. Mm-hmm. So now I I kind of want to dive in. And talk about the the main character, or I guess the putative main character, the hero villain of the story is is Satan. Mm-hmm. Now that's one of the sort of ironies of this. If there is a tragic sort of heroic villain, it would be Satan in in this poem. Now that seems odd for a Puritan to do, but there's there's a reason for yeah. that. Um, Okay, the there's a, a sort of misreading of Satan as virtuous and heroic that I think stems in part from the Romantics' use of him, the 19th century use of Satan as this kind of tragic figure. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm not trying to suggest that the Romantics were not sophisticated or savvy in their reading. I, I think we have a tendency to want to read uh, earlier authors as somehow primitive or unsophisticated or unaware of what they're reading. Most of the romantics were very good readers, yeah. uh, really, really attuned to what was going on and very clear readers and very broad readers. They used Milton. I'm, I'm thinking here in particular of Byron and Shelley and Blake, but also in different ways of Wordsworth. I'll talk about Wordsworth later. But they used Milton in a particular way and used Satan in a particular way to mean something specific for them. It's not that they couldn't see what Milton was doing. It's that they had a particular agenda and were sort of reading it in, in a particular way. Right. A, a kind of, that, a kind of the, selective reading of the character. Yeah, or or utilizing it for their own purposes, even though they clearly understood what was going yeah. on. Um that that reading of Satan has sort of become ingrained in a way, and there's a lot that Milton is doing to make Satan heroic. He has this kind of aesthetic dignity to him that gets us on his side. Whenever he speaks, it's hard not to feel for him. 
uh, he he's extraordinarily appealing, but that's the problem. Right. Uh, that that's kind of the problem that Milton set out. Milton wanted to make him appealing because. If he wasn't appealing, we wouldn't be able to understand why it's so easy to fall into sin. Right. It's, uh, it's the – he wouldn't be the threat that he is if he did not hold that appeal. If, if you aren't reading the poem and thinking to yourself, oh, yeah, I've thought along those lines myself too, then you know that's, 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 that's the point for Milton is to demonstrate like, aha, yes, yeah, see, you're evil as heck. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it's it's so easy to fall into the trap of going along with Satan, all right. And it, it's it's in book one at his first vaunting that you you really get into it, and you can easily get sucked into the sound of what he's saying. So this is from book one. It's when he wakes up on the lake of fire and looks over at Beelzebub, and he starts off this rant. He says, If thou beest he, but oh, how fallen, how changed from him, who in the happy realms of light, clothed with transcendent brightness, didst thou shine myriads though bright? If he who mutually united thoughts and counsels equal hope and hazard in the glorious enterprise, joined with me once, now misery hath joined an equal ruin. And to what pit thou seest from what height fallen, so much the stronger proved he with his thunder. Until then, who knew the force of those dire arms yet not for those nor what the potent victor in his rage can else inflict do i repent or change though changed in outward luster that fixed mind and high disdain from sense of injured merit that with the mightiest raised me to contend and to the fierce contention brought along innumerable force of spirits armed that durst dislike his reign and me preferring his utmost power with adverse power opposed in dubious battle on the plains of heaven and shook his throne what though the field be lost, all is not lost. The unconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate, encourage never to submit or yield, and what is else not to be overcome, that glory never shall his wrath or might extort from me, to bow and sue for grace with supplicant and deify his power, who from the terror of his arms so late doubted his empire, that were low indeed, that were an ignominy and shame beneath this downfall. Okay, so what Satan is advertising is this sort of heroic aspect of him. Though I'm beaten, though I'm battered, I'm still going to fight mm-hmm. on. It's kind of the, the the glamour of the lost cause. Yeah. Um, okay, that's nice. That gets us on his side, but there's something wrong here, and you can spot it from the very beginning. Uh, did you ever have to diagram sentences back in high school? Uh, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we started in, in, I remember it most from middle school because I think that's when we started doing it. Um, yeah. I'm sure I must have continued on, but yeah. Um, <clears throat> sentence diagramming is actually really kind of fascinating when you begin to apply it to Paradise Lost, especially to Satan's speeches. Uh, hmm. I had a professor point this out to me in undergrad. None of his speeches parse. Huh. They're grammatically incorrect. And you can see it from the beginning. He yeah. sounds like he's making a whole lot of sense, but grammatically, this is just gibberish. Right. It, it doesn't – nothing connects up to anything. Yeah. Right. So that's part one of the trap. Anytime you're listening to him, you have to constantly be aware that he's going to sound like he's making sense, but he's literally not. He's making no grammatical sense. And <clears throat> what you get in that very first sentence, if thou beest he who I knew in heaven, but oh, how changed. It's this self-interruption. If you have an if, you got to have a then. He never gets to the then. Mm-hmm. 
And he keeps adding if on top of if and never quite gets to the conclusion. He cannot think logically. <laughs> he's, he's like that uh, the most annoying guy in your philosophy class. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. He's just speculative gibberish just, after just, speculative Just spouting out conditional after conditional expecting you to respond to them and never like, like well, what are we actually talking about? Yeah. And there, there's a great epic simile that Milton uses to exemplify this. He has this moment – where it's it's after Satan is sort of rallying the troops and he's rallying um, Beelzebub, he gets up and starts moving off the lake of fire. <clears throat> this is in book one. Milton writes, Thus Satan talking to his nearest mate with head uplift above the wave and eyes that sparkling blazed, his other parts besides prone on the flood extended long and large, lay floating many a rood in bulk as large, uh, sorry, in bulk as huge as whom the fables name of monstrous size, Titanian or earthborn, that ward on Jove, Briarius or Typhon, whom the den by ancient Tarsus held, or that sea beast Leviathan, which God of all his works created hugest that swim in the ocean stream. Him haply slumber, slumbering, on the Norway foam, the pilot of some small night-foundered skiff, deeming some island oft, as seamen tell, with fixed anchor in a scaly rind, moors by his side under the lee, while night invests the sea and wished more delays, so stretched out huge in length the archfiend lay, chained on the burning lake. Um, <clears throat> He's comparing he's comparing Satan uh, first to these various mythological gigantic huge monsters and ultimately to Leviathan from the Bible. And he's comparing him not just to Leviathan, but also to a Leviathan who's floating on the top of the, the, the water, who looks like he might be an island that someone, like a lonely fisherman who's lost, you know, at sea in the middle of the night, who needs a safe harbor is going to anchor up next towards. But as soon as he anchors into the thing, what's going to happen? Satan looks like a safe harbor. He's not. Yeah. So even with the the epic simile from the beginning, Milton is advertising that this guy is up to no good. All you have to do is pay attention to the text and you can see, okay, if you're being seduced by Satan, you're being seduced by Satan. Um, and there's more to it than that. <clears throat> he's he's self-deluded. He... He's often incorrect, and he's always making this case that he knows what's going on and he knows what's happening, but he doesn't. Yeah. Um, in book five, where we get to the the actual war in heaven, um, he's got this moment where he's arguing. He's trying to rally the other angels to his side, and he's trying to make the case that they should rebel against God. It's in book five at line 859. Um, <clears throat> he says, We know no time when we were not as now. No none before us self-begot self-raised by our own quickening power when fatal course had circled his full orb, the birth mature of this our native heaven ethereal sons. Um, he's, he's been displaced by Jesus because God basically comes in and says, hey, this is my new guy. And Satan is arguing that they need to rebel against this because this is some new order. And if I can be displaced, everybody can be displaced. Mm -hmm. Another angel 
pipes up and says, hey, wait a minute, this is God we're talking about, and he's a good guy, and he loves us all, and he created us, Satan says, well, I didn't see that happen. As far as I know, I'm self-sufficient. Yeah. I'm self-created. Who's to say we didn't create ourselves? Um, He's he's deluded. He he doesn't understand, you know – like it, it, it would he's be not like, the most powerful, right? And it's kind of this—it's this kind of—it um, presents something kind of curious to me because you would think of any of the created beings who would be fully aware of the of the nature of their creation or whatnot. It, it would be the the divines that exist in heaven with God the Father. I mean, it's just, it just seems kind of like. I don't know. It feels like that's an easier uh, kind of argument to make if you're someone, you know, like me, who's just, you know, sort of a, a bag of protoplasm <laughs> kind of crawling across one tiny planet in this vast, vast universe to think like, nah, I'm probably not, you know, this probably just happened. But if you're there and you're, you are the Lucifer, you are the light bearer in, in the whole, the garden of God the Father, it's like, yeah, man, yeah, maybe it's you. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he has this tendency to talk himself out of things. It, it's really kind of amusing that it, this this I think is a parallel uh, to how Dante used Satan uh, at any moment Satan could just stop being Satan if he would stop crying stop waving his wings pause for a second seek forgiveness all would be good yeah but the nature of Satan is not to do that Satan has several moments in the text of Paradise Lost where he could just stop like okay this is stupid the nature of the divine is to forgive and to love and to embrace and bring you back into the fold I could just go back to that but no and you see this in in book four he's he's obsessed with his trauma he he's been traumatized Mm -hmm. he's been broken his epistemology has been shattered because what he felt or the way that he felt the world functioned or that he could know the world has been broken and he's been displaced um he keeps coming back to this trauma and he says um in book four, which way I fly is hell, myself am hell. Now that's actually an echo of Marlowe's uh, Mephistopheles in Dr. Faustus. It, it's not exactly a direct echo. Milton is doing yeah. something different than Marlowe, but he's sort of drawing the same idea. But Satan can't go anywhere because he's so broken. He already is, he already always will be in the depth of hell. Uh, so he says, and in the lowest deep, a lower deep still threatening to devour me opens wide to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven. And no matter what I do, my self-awareness is always sort of going to be my curse. I'm constantly aware that I am lesser now. I'm constantly aware that I'm in pain. And anytime I think on this, it's just going to make it worse. So nihilistic abyss opens into nihilistic abyss opens into nihilistic abyss, and there is no end to the pain for him. All right. So then he says... Oh, then at last relent. Is there no place left for repentance? None for pardon left. Uh, okay, I could stop at any moment. I could I could ask God to to take me back. 
I could say I'm sorry. Yeah. None left but by submission, and that word disdain forbids me, and my dread of shame among the spirits beneath, whom I seduced with other promises and other vaunts than to submit, boasting I could subdue the omnipotent. All right. So Satan at this point is on earth. He's alighted, and he's looking around at the place, and he's remembering, well, you know, I told everyone back in hell that I would go and I would do this and I would take them down. Well, if I don't, then I'd look like an idiot. <laughs> yeah. So it's he, he he talks himself out of it. He you know it's it's fear of what other people are going to think of him rather than doing the right thing. I mean, you know, right, which is which is kind of the nature of pride, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean it's that, that, that's the nature of politics. About. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, but it's that. Yeah, that's the nature of pride. I, I can't sustain my own ego. <laughs> Excuse me. If everyone else thinks I'm an idiot, right? Right, right. So anyway, he he's self-pitying. He's self-justifying. He's um, always remembering his his trauma and loss. And there's this other fascinating thing that, that Milton does. He talks about evil as a kind of disease. Um, in book nine – this is something that I thought was really sort of fascinating. In book nine, in lines 126 to 133, if I can open it up, he says, Nor hope to be myself less miserable by what I seek, but others to make such as I, though thereby worse to me redound. For only in destroying I find ease to my relentless thoughts, <clears throat> and him destroyed, or one to what may work his utter loss. Uh, he's meditating to himself on why he does what he does. And essentially, what he does is destroys others because he is in such pain. It's, it's as if um, evil is a kind of contagion. And so he seeks to have power over others because that's the only thing that makes him forget for a minute how miserable and horrible he is. I mean, all you have to do is look at current events. Yeah. And the satanic is all around us. It's in every, you know, nearly every political utterance that blasts out of a certain television station 24 <laughs> 7. It's, yeah. it's resentment. And evil, I mean literal yeah. evil. So it's, it's yeah. Just it's, you don't you don't have to go you, you don't have to go uh, uh, you know shooting up pizza restaurants to find satanic activity in our in our in our society. Like it's it's right front and center. No, you don't. So when I say that contemporary politics, I've written about this on on the blog is evil. Yeah. That's what I mean. Right. It's it's nihilistic, self destructive, hateful, seeking power over others only to assuage its own self awareness of its own nothingness. Yeah, to hell with it. Um, in fact, yes, <laughs> to hell with it, indeed. But I, I'm sorry, that's it, it gets me so <clears throat> aggravated because <clears throat> Milton had such a uh, an insight into this. And there's, again, in book nine, there's this other metaphor they use as <clears throat> Satan is talking to himself again. He says, revenge, though uh, at first they're sweet, bitter ere long, back on itself recoils, let it. I reck not, so at light well aimed, since higher I fall short on him who next provokes my envy, this new favorite of heaven, this man of clay, son of despite, whom us the more to spite this maker raised from dust, spite then with spite is best repaid. Um this is this metaphor that keeps coming back up, and it's it's even a bad pun that Milton uses. He talks about goodness 
as a kind of perpetual motion machine. And I think we were talking about this last time mm-hmm. because it gets into that sort of like ecological way that that Milton is thinking about the divine. Um, goodness, the more you give, the more you are given. And it's this loving generosity that keeps propelling it forward. Evil, he talks about as a kind of a recoil, like a gun. Yeah. Um, you shoot to hit to you, you shoot to hit to hurt something, and then the force knocks you back worse than what you did. Yeah. So it's it's the antithesis of that. Satan says, "Bring it on," and there's there's a a sort of dumb pun in there. It's a recoil, i.e., a recoiling of the snake. It pushes him back into mm-hmm. that lowly form that he ultimately ends up inhabiting. So it's it's this weird idea. It's the the parallel idea. If goodness is this thing that is interconnecting, if love is this thing that's interconnecting, that brings us together in this mutually beneficial way that that draws all things, then evil is that thing that ultimately is going to shatter us. Yeah, like it it, it uh, and it's kind of well, it's kind of terrifying to think of it in that way as the as a kind of. Well, described as like a self as so much so as good as a self reinforcing cycle of you know nurturing and growing that evil is a is itself you know this feedback loop of self and other destruction that I mean that's that's it it, it presents a kind of a I don't know if cosmology is the right word but a, a definitely some a kind of a kind of a metaphysical uh, setup that just feels like it's almost. Well, it's like those uh, chaotic mathematics sets, right? Where yeah. the, the, those initial conditions are, are are so imperative to determining, like you know, the ultimate outcomes. With like, if you go off the rails, well, I guess that's why they call it the straight and narrow. <laughs> you go off the rails <laughs> a little bit. It's this compounding error that uh, that uh, just draws yourself and everything else down with you. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I think that's that's a useful way of of thinking about it. Sort of evil as as chaotic fractal. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I think. I think Milton would probably think about that uh, in in just those negative terms. Though I, I have this argument that twentieth um, and to a degree certain kinds of twenty first century poetics uh, draws positively from from chaos theory. Uh, but we can talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> it's this idea that there are parameters that we can know and understand, but what happens within those parameters is often chaotic, which can right. shift the parameters whether we want to or not. Right. So you can know certain things and um, comprehend certain things within certain kinds of parameters, but within those parameters it's it's absolute epistemological uncertainty yeah um, and again we're back to epistemology and ontology <laughs> I, I, th- I think we really uh we've, we've discovered the overriding obsession of the western canon man well i think it's my overriding <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah never mind or, or we're you know i mean that might be a simpler explanation that we're imputing our overriding <laughs> obsessions into the material we read but that can't be right well um it it gets into uh, some of the stuff that I guess troubles me the most about Milton. There there are one or two other other points I want to hit, and then I want to get back to epistemology and ontology. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing that sort of 
keeps coming up as far as sin is concerned is idolatry. And I think we touched on this last time, but idolatry seems to be this major sin that, that, or, or this, well, it's not exactly a sin, but it's, it's uh, an action that, that Milton always wants to condemn because it's so connected to pride. Right. Uh, You, you make an idol of yourself or you make an idol of something else. Um, It's what causes the fall in some capacity. He's, Coming down to Earth, and he's plotting to, you know, do what he does. And um, oh, I'm sorry, this is book eight. Uh, I'm yeah. getting confused. Uh, this is when Adam is talking to uh, Raphael. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's talking to Raphael, and he sort of hints at what's eventually going to happen because he starts sort of going off to, to Raphael about um, how much he loves Eve. And he says, uh, yet when I approach her loveliness, so absolute she seems and in herself complete so well to know her own that when she wills to do or say seems wisest, virtuous, uh, discreetest, best, all higher knowledge in her presence falls degraded Wisdom and discourse with her looses discountenanced and like folly shows authority and reason on her weight as one intended first, not after made occasionally, and to consummate all greatness of mind and nobleness their seat, <clears throat> build in her loveliest and create an awe about her as a guard angelic placed to whom the angel with contracted brow accuse not nature. <laughs> she hath done her part. Do thou but thine and be not diffident of wisdom. She deserts thee not if thou dismiss not her, when most thou needst her nigh by attributing overmuch to things less excellent as thou perceivest. Okay, you idiot, you're idolizing her. Yeah. Now, part of this is is Adam being, you know, sort of so taken by the love he he feels for someone. And, you know, I think we've all had that moment where we just sort of gush on a person and, uh, you know, really lay it on thick. This mm-hmm. is the best. You're the most beautiful, so on and so forth. Um, though my wife is the best and the most beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. I mean, I would disagree there, and I, I would say my <laughs> wife is, but uh, I understand the sentiment. Uh-huh. But no, I like he's he's sort of overdoing it. Yeah. And he says some things in overdoing it that signal that he he best watch himself. He says. Um, <clears throat> That what she wills to do or say seems wisest, virtuousest. So he's saying she's smarter than I am. Right. All higher knowledge in her presence falls degraded. Wisdom and discourse with her loses discountenanced and like folly shows. Uh, by the way, this is Milton's misogyny coming through. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just basically arguing that like, oh, these women just bewitch you into becoming idiots and it's all yeah. their fault. Yeah. My wife is way smarter than I am. But it's it's not her fault that I'm an idiot. I'm just (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Authority and reason on her weight as one intended first, not after made occasionally. Okay, so she seems so much more attuned to everything than I am that it seems like she was made first. And to consummate all greatness of mind and nobleness, the seat build in her loveliest and create an awe about her as a guard angelic placed. She seems self-sufficient. Where have we heard that before? (laughs) Um in satan yeah also in god right but i guess with you know in god's case well you know it's true he's the prime mover and it's true right and that's the kind of well i don't know i mean maybe that's uh you know god maybe should have thought of this that if you're going to 
if you're going to impart some of your divine spark into your created beings, then, uh, you know, really, you're, you're laying the trap for us to start thinking this way about ourselves. Well, OK, so <laughs> I, I guess I'll jump the gun a little bit. Um, <laughs> there, there's uh, Bloom brings this up, but there's this fascinating literary critic, William Empson. If any listeners haven't read Empson before, check him out because um, he had a neck beard like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> no, literally, he, he yeah. grew this mustache and this gigantic neck beard i don't quite understand it but he he was a, a really interesting critic he's sometimes associated with the new critics but he's not doctrinaire in any way shape or form and he's not um <clears throat> he's not at all interested in their conservative politics and he's mm. not at all interested in holding up certain works as the end-all be-all and he believes in bringing context to bear. Yeah. He, he was really, really attuned to a kind of formalist reading and close attention to the words themselves, but in a very playful, fun, ingenious and creative way. And not in this sort of, this is the ultimate meaning. There can be no other meaning. This is the sort of stilted, stultifying way. Yeah. Um, he did a whole book on, uh, oh, if you want to sample him first, check out Seven Types of Ambiguity. It's a book he wrote in his 20s, and it just it makes me despair uh, <laughs> that <laughs> someone could be that brilliant in his 20s. But um, he, he did this book uh, uh, on, on Milton where he basically says it's God's fault. Like what was the – I mean th this is the problem with – Writing a meditation on sin, where are you going to lay the blame? You know, right. where, where are you really going to place the blame? It has to ultimately fall at God's feet. Well, why did you do this? All right. <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, if, if you're theologically inclined, you'll say, well, that's the mystery of the divine. Why did you put this all in motion by creating Jesus to piss off lucifer well you know that's the mystery of the divine yeah well, that's i mean is that sufficient then the, if, if that's the case then milton hasn't really resolved anything <laughs> he hasn't really made the argument that he set out to make why is there evil because god made it right and it what, what i thought was very was interesting and i was kind of the i don't know if chronology is the right word to use in all this but there is a there is a causal chain that milton presents for all this kind of stuff even even though like i i imagine like the war in heaven takes place in some sort of i don't know timeless pre-eternity or something but um so well what i think is interesting and i think like this bit that you the 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 passage that you read where wherein Adam is describing his you know his feelings about Eve and how it makes him go all gaga and you know all that he's he's sort of setting up this it's foreshadowing of course the the ultimate you know fall for Adam and whatnot but I, but there's a theological problem in there I I would think in that. We are led, you know, it's supposed to be that it's the, the transgression of Eve and Adam and, and eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which introduces imperfection into God's creation, right? right? God can only, God is perfect. He is infallible. He created creation for the enjoyment of these human beings that he also created, but then they screwed it up. But is this clearly not Adam himself being imperfect? Is, is the, is human frailty the actual necessary element of the the free will escape hatch that 
all that a lot of theologies rely upon for all of this because it, it I don't know it struck me as very interesting. Uh, but I don't know if I don't know what what kind of thoughts would you have about that? I I, 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 I found myself thinking about it a lot. I, I don't because that's that's always the it, it's like trying to square the circle. Yeah, like, <laughs> right. I it's mean, the mystery of the divine. Yeah, there's, yeah, it, yeah. It's it, it's what these theological arguments always bend back to, and at the end of the day, I can never really make sense of them. Yeah, <clears throat> it's it's the whole of book three where Milton puts words into the mouth of God and and basically tries to justify this whole scheme. Okay, so I didn't force anybody to do this, but I am all-powerful and in control and did set it into motion. Well, then, okay, what does that mean? If you made all of this genetically predisposed to happen in this way, did you not cause it? And it, it always strikes me as quibbling over cause and effect. I don't find this sufficient at all. I, I, I think Emson's right and God is to blame. I, yeah. I, I don't know what else. I'm drawn to certain aspects of Milton. I'm drawn to sort of what we were talking about last time, this kind of almost Gnostic ecological way of thinking about the interconnectedness of all things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see, I'll talk about this in a little bit, but I, I can see how Wordsworth would take something like that and then turn it transcendental. Yeah, that, yeah that, absolutely. That makes sense to me. And there's something I find that's appealing about that. There are parts of his poetic that I think are really brilliant. The justification for the poetic and... and Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The aesthetic dignity of the work itself is is really astounding, but as theology, I I think this is just nuts. And what's <laughs> and what's also interesting is that it's it's very it's very unorthodox theology as as we would understand orthodoxy today, and as Milton's contemporaries would understand orthodoxy. Although this, of course, was during the sort of the fallout of the Protestant Reformation, and you know, orthodoxies were kind of up for grabs. <laughs> um, but uh, but essentially, uh, almost all almost all people who call themselves Christians today um, belong to churches which, in their official doctrines, and again, this is not to actually go into people's actual beliefs or the way Christianity is practiced or truly embraced by people, but the the official doctrines as laid down are almost all Trinitarian. Um, right. They hold to the, the uh, again, mystery of the faith here, that there is one God, but that God is also three persons 
whom are all equal in, in power and dignity to one another and are all identical with one another, even though they are different. Um, and again, like it, and, and you, you know, it's, it's it's the kind of that's the real squaring of the circle right there, man. Because it's it's a it's a tradition <laughs> that developed. It's very interesting to actually read about the development of Trinitarian theology because it was centuries before it was really hashed out. I mean, that's there are. Um, there are some non-Trinitarian uh, uh, traditions uh, out there, but the but Milton veers toward that here because his Son of God, again and again, I hate to use a word like chronology or whatever because I'm not sure that that you know is what even Milton is thinking of. But you know, the Son of God appears after Lucifer and the angels, right? Right. So the Son of God is not co-eternal with God the Father or the Holy Spirit. Ergo. He must necessarily be dependent. He must necessarily not be of like eternity and majesty as God the Father or the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, and this is this is pretty like Milton was. He wrote other other times about that. He, he would actually argue this, and it's an argument that goes way 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 back in early Christianity. Like I said, I mean, this is the kind of thing that's been hashed out numerous numerous times. Um, so I, I thought I found that was very interesting. I did not expect that. I thought this would you know. I thought Milton, when I was going into this, I thought Milton was going to be just kind of like, well, he was going to be pulling a Dante, but with the kind of more foundational story of all the various Christian traditions. But instead, he's staking out a pretty fringe position. Yeah. And it makes me honestly kind of impressed with his poetic chops that <laughs> that it wasn't like burned by the religious authorities of the time you know well, I mean, and i'm sure he got into some trouble with some grumpy bishops here and there but well by by the time that he wrote this he was just some lunatic living you know out in the middle of nowhere he was sort of like this fringe <laughs> right he was he was the, the puritan unabomber uh, out there just well, he, typing away he, he was if lee harvey oswald oswald had lived no i mean he he was the king killer he was part of that puritan yeah. government and yeah he was just sort of dismissed as okay. This is a lunatic. We'd feel bad. It would look bad to execute him. Let's yeah. just leave him be. Um, but but that, but I guess that is to say, like the kind of uh, the there's a thematic. I think I do think there is there is definitely a, an, an admirable thematic um, continuity and coherence to to the work. But you're but I mean you're absolutely right that the minute you sort of start to address or pick apart its theological suppositions, it's not quite as coherent. And I, I would, I would wonder if that was like, I don't know, maybe Milton had a, had a, a more airtight argument to be made outside of the poem, but he still, you know, he was proud of his poem and didn't want it to be burned. So he, so he dialed back some things. I don't know, but it was really fascinating to me. I felt this kind of tension in it. Almost. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, I, I think at this point he just wrote whatever he wanted to write. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I don't know. Okay, I don't know the biography well enough to know what his attitude or, or what the publication history was. Mm -hmm. um, I just know that at this point he was this crazy lunatic, and he, they just kind of left him alone to do what have you, and he he really wasn't regarded all that much. He sort of he didn't exactly die in obscurity, but it wasn't like. You know, it wasn't like he was rushing to the press and that people were dying to read everything that he was doing. I mean, the aesthetics shifted radically after the English Civil War. Um, yeah. What what happened was Charles II, uh, the quote unquote Merry Monarch, came back from France uh, completely 
Frenchified. Yeah. Uh, he, he really altered or, or his court really altered the aesthetics of, of writing in this way. I mean, not, it's an intervention. It's not sort of like a, a hey, everything is all of a sudden different now. You know, you can't really quite do that, but they solidified this much more cosmopolitan, much more, uh, urbane and or, ornate style of writing. Yeah. And you can see it. I mean, we'll see it. Okay. What we're going to do next time. We're not done yet, but what we're going to do next time <laughs> is Samuel Johnson. And Johnson is, is later than Charles II, but is still sort of working in a very similar mode to the kind of restoration stuff that Charles brought with him. So the kind of writing shifts, what people value in the writing shifts, if any of our listeners are interested, read the the comedies, the dramatic comedies from the time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, check out the, the play The Man of Mode. That's a, a play that gives you an insight into this new aesthetic. Yeah. Um, it, I guess is this um, is this the period? I guess uh, restoration comedy is is a term people might have heard. Is is that? I guess yeah. that's a little later, though, right? No, no, no. That's that's what oh, I'm talking okay, about okay. here. Yeah, um, it's it's a different type of writing with different concerns to it and a, a, a different rationale for it. A different audience. So I I don't think Milton would have been really high on anybody's list of being worth burning. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah that's true. <laughs> he's irrelevant. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. so he you know, the theological argument doesn't quite work. There there are things that come back again and again and again. The the meditation on nihilist on nihilism and trauma, I think, is the most pertinent part here. And it's what still speaks to us today. Um Satan is a reflection of those nihilistic villains from Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I think Iago outdoes him, but yeah. Iago is traumatized and internally broken. And as a result seeks to do as much damage to everyone else who he feels is better than him because he can't be good himself. He, he can't, it, instead of doing something creative to try to connect with the world, he'd rather demolish it to make it his image. Right. Well, uh, yeah, that's, I guess the, um, well, in a way there's a kind of, uh, I think Yago and, and Satan exhibit what we might think of as the kind of failure of imagination of evil. Yeah. In that it's, you know, the, the evil actor can only think of other people as also, you know, you, you, you honestly see it all the time uh, in your real life too. If you've ever known some awful people <laughs> yeah. where they, they presume that everyone else is going to be as selfish or whatever as they are. And that that's why they're doing what they're doing. So it's actually fine for me to, you know, behave this way toward them because they're just as bad as I am. Yeah. Which brings know? us back to modern politics, but, the, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's, that's really exactly how it goes. And that's, that's one of the reasons. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit. Uh, I'll, I'll break down the wall a little bit. I, I had a, a pretty invasive cancer screening recently. Um, mm. came up negative. Great. I'm still alive. That's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, but they, they put me under. And as I was waking up, uh, you know, the, the doctor comes by and just casually says, Oh, you're clear. Everything's fine. And I had this moment of just being struck by, you know, how fragile 
life really is by how yeah. you know we, we were given this limited space this this limited time and and i was given more of it and then i i kind of i was coming out of the anesthesia and started crying on the gurney a little bit because i got so angry at milton um it's a beautiful <laughs> life it's a beautiful world and yeah. um this poem is stitched into me in ways that i wish it were not and partially it's the, the, the too convincing picture of nihilistic evil that he paints with Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we talked about it before, but the romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge kept trying to write these meditations on evil and kept not finishing them because it was sort of like if you get cl- too close to meditating on evil, it infects you in this way. Yeah, yeah. You, you know too much and it begins to harm you. Right. It's kind of, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel something kind of similar on, um, you know, like, like a lot of people, I, uh, I have uh, an interest in some, uh, in, in some true crime material every now and then. Um, yeah. and, and, and so for, you know, and like most people, like you go through a phase where you'll, you'll research, uh, like serial killers because they exist in our public consciousness as it's kind of like, this is the ultimate in, in disassociated post-industrial evil. Right. Right. And you, you read them and in popular culture, it's always like some vast scheme or he's, you know, he's crazy and he works out in this and whatever. And you actually like, you know, you, you, when you read about these people and you, and you actually like, you, 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 you you read about like, you know, the deep dive into the psychology and whatever it's what's ultimately so depressing. And, and just what, what I take away most of it is that there's, there isn't anything there. Mm -hmm. There, there isn't, it's, it's purely a matter of like some switch got, you know, some bone didn't set right in the brain or some switch got flipped somewhere. And they're just, for whatever reason, like they're just working out their own venal, uh, a desire for gratification and it just so happens that a person has to die to do that. Yeah. There's and nothing past just venal gratification. And and you you dig into that stuff for too much and it it makes you despair. Like yeah, is the yeah. whole world like this? Right. And and I wrote about this on the blog. This is why I didn't want to do this. Or, or this is why I was <laughs> right. so reluctant to do this because <laughs> I look at the world around me and despair. Um, the, the sort of nihilistic, resentful, conservative politics that are so much a part of the discourse now mm-hmm. has so warped the, the consciousness of the nation that, uh, once you've read Paradise Lost, you look back out at anything any of these fools are uttering and you're like, this is satanic. I mean, it's literally satanic in the yeah. Miltonian way. So, so partially, I, I'm mad at Milton for making <laughs> such a convincing um, figure of evil because it 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 warps how I, I view the world. But there's there's something else that really really bothers me, and mm-hmm. we're coming back to ontology and epistemology. There's a running theme in Paradise Lost. Uh, characters point to their own self-sufficiency or claim their own self-sufficiency. And that's, that's obviously self-idolatry. Right. You're, you're making an idol of yourself. And that's also connected to this way that for Milton, thinking is 
thinking, self-consciousness, and self-awareness are the first step towards the fall. Right. Um, Satan, Lucifer knows himself, truly knows himself in the moment he is displaced by Christ. Right. He knows himself <clears throat> not to be a part of the system anymore. He's, he's self-aware. He's aware of himself as a separate conscious entity. And consciousness throughout Milton is pain. Self-awareness is pain. Right. Um, Eve does it. In, in the beginning, or, or in the, excuse me, in the section before she's tempted to eat the apple, uh, she wanders off and is aware of herself as this sort of separate entity with her own wants and ideas and feelings and her own consciousness. Um, it's that that gets her. Right. It, it seems like for Milton to really be good or or innocent is to be unaware of yourself as a separate entity unaware of your own consciousness to be self unaware at sort of stupidly attuned to the world around you milton is buddhist this is In, this is he's he's positing a kind of buddhist conception of uh, of the annihilation of self as as this liberation from uh from venality and from evil no I, you're yeah I mean, at least you know I'm, I'm. You know, this is a this is a. I remind everyone I am an amateur Miltonian and an amateur scholar of Buddhism. <laughs> but I, I, I guess I should just say that it's, it's it. At least I think it rhymes. I guess with that yeah. conception of Nirvana as the annihilation of self. There's a significant point of contact between the two, and what Milton does is inscribes consciousness as trauma into the history of poetry in English. Hmm. Um. It is the thread that the romantics pick up. Uh, Self-awareness as pain, as trauma, is that ontological epistemological rift that cracks open our understanding of the world. It it, it breaks us. It it breaks our understanding of how we know the world and how the world functions – and Milton makes it such a large component of writing in English. The Romantics pick it up and take that as kind of their foundational philosophical issue. It's yeah. sort of the running thread throughout Romanticism. And I'll throw down and say that we're still wrestling with that. That's still a philosophical problem that thinkers, well, at least poets, from my experience, are wrestling with. How can we use language to coordinate some kind of comprehension of the world in whatever limited capacity? Um, Wordsworth tries to do it, and he tries to do it in Milton's verse form in Tintern Abbey. I mean, the whole Mm -hmm. thing reaches towards this kind of transcendental ideal where you do have that nirvana moment of losing your self-awareness and becoming one with the world uh wordsworth thinks we could possibly get back to it uh coleridge negotiates in his own way shelley negotiates in his own way 
thinkers and writers on down the line keep negotiating it. I would say Dickinson negotiates it in her own way. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Bishop negotiates it in her own way. Wallace Stevens negotiates it in his own way. The late, great John Ashbery negotiated it in his own way. But it's, it's this idea that there's a fundamental rupture between the, the self and the world. And this rupture is caused by self-consciousness and self-awareness and self-awareness, self-consciousness is necessarily pain. And the reason I'm so frustrated with Milton is because I wish it wasn't that way. Mm, yeah. Um, I think we've seen alternatives. I like to think Montaigne could be a possible alternative because <clears throat> Montaigne is continually surprised by himself and he doesn't seem to have a stable self, mm-hmm. right? But his meditations, his sort of self-conscious attempts to understand himself are not tragic. Yeah, exactly. Like it's a kind of um, – and I guess there could be any number of – I don't know. Is it is it just personal biographical reasons why some people take the tragic approach and others don't seem to see it that way? Is Is there – is it some kind of – you know, uh, deep set philosophical bent. I mean, I, is it just a matter of personality? Is it is it genetic? Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right, though. Like Montaigne is absolutely a counterpoint to that that notion of uh, you know th- that that self self. It, it is consciousness itself, which is the fall. Right. Uh, yeah. It, where for him, you know, it's it, consciousness itself is that's how you, that's how you play in creation. That's how you that's how you live in creation. Yeah, and I wish that that had been inscribed <laughs> into writing in English instead of this other thing, because yeah. this is what I'm saying. I've got too much of Milton in me. I've got too much Paradise Lost in me that I can't help but feel to think is to be isolated and alone, to be aware of myself is to be isolated and alone. I, I would much rather be able to capture that kind of playfulness, I think, mm-hmm. that that you you illustrated I think so so rightly in Montaigne. Um but I can't help but feel doomed by having <laughs> steeped myself in in this literature, I, yeah, I, I you really uh, do. Yeah, you had the uh, you like myself had the good fortune to be born into a, a, a hegemonically anglophone society. So <laughs> we're stuck with Milton. <laughs> if only I had never read all this shit, then I think I'd be a lot happier. <laughs> well, anyway, I, I I think that that at least explains some of my my animus towards this. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a personal animus that, you know, I, I, I feel like it could have been otherwise yeah. and, and perhaps it should have been otherwise, but instead we get Milton. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. I, I guess, um, I don't know. I, I guess to kind of wrap up, we can, I guess we can kind of, we can kind of wrap up our, our impressions here as uh, as you know, you are of course the professional you've, you've, you've actually taught paradise lost. And I think mm-hmm. I mentioned on the first, uh, I, I, at least I hope I had mentioned because we usually like to talk about our histories with the text uh, that I had only ever read portions of it about what 10, 12 years ago and was only doing that just so I wouldn't get an F on the quiz. Like I was not really <laughs> engaged in it. I didn't really pay attention. Um, so I honestly, I was, 
as as with so many things on the cannonball, I was surprised with how much I enjoyed the act of reading the the work and and I should stop being surprised by that because I've you know I've come to learn that we're enduring and influential works are enduring and influential for a reason and part of that reason has to be the affective pleasure of you when you when you fall into the reading trance you know how the yeah. how the language actually operates um, but it, it ended up being. I, I, it was one of those things where I found myself sort of being taken out of that trance in those times when I would notice something like, you know, like, oh, that's anti-Trinitarian or like, oh, that seems to be like, you know, positing this or that. And I could not extract myself from my kind of like my love of uh, studying and categorizing the various, uh, uh, you know, heresies uh, of the of the early modern world and, and those heresies which came to be accepted and ceased being heresies. Um, but but in the end, though, like I I. I feel like I need to know more and I guess we will know more as we carry on about the impact of Paradise Lost because what yeah. you described to me about how it, how it how it imputed this um that 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 dire view of of consciousness of self-knowledge uh into the English literary tradition that is something that I will absolutely end up reflecting on more I think as I as I read more in that tradition and I, and you know we notice uh, notice it and pick up on it um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. So that that's I think like I think that's and thank you as always. Thank you, Claude. You, you've posi- you've positioned me to to be a, a better and more engaged reader as a, as as we go through all this. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess like would would I recommend that a curious reader read it for themselves? Uh, yeah, go for it. If you know, if it's <laughs> I give it five bags of popcorn. No, um, but. Uh, it's the kind of thing I think you should get. You should give a shot. Um, yeah. Read the first couple books. If you're not, you know, I'm a very strong proponent of if you're not into it, then you're not into it and move on. Because um, if you know, if you read a couple books of it and it's just not going to be your cup of tea. Like the rest of it is even more of that. So don't do not worry. Um, I, I, I would say if you're an American Christian, you must read it. Yeah, uh, just oh, totally. because yeah. it it will challenge what you think your own theology is, and if you're immensely opposed to American Christianity, you must read it because it also gives us insight into <clears throat> the richness and depth of the the thinking in that tradition. Absolutely, absolutely. These, you know, he's he's not stupid. Oh no, uh, I not also at all. think. <laughs> I also think American Christians should read uh, Dante, but I also think they should read a whole lot more stuff, <laughs> and that'll maybe stop them from trying to destroy me and my family. One, uh, so anyway, one can um, dearly hope. One can dearly hope. Well, so um, the 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 next part of our our quest. We're going to take on Samuel Johnson. Uh, I'm going to post some stuff on the blog about how we're going to take this on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samuel Johnson was uh, he was a journalist. He was a, a master of the hot take. <laughs> he, <laughs> was, he was very prolific. I, I know he was you, a poet. You, I know you mentioned uh, yeah. Samuel Johnson. I thought to myself, like. Didn't that guy write like a whole lot? <laughs> like, we have to read like some anthology or something, but I'm sure well, we have he, we have we have selections from Johnson. He wrote the the first dictionary in English, or he wrote the first English dictionary. <laughs> All right, for so, completeness' yes, sake, cover to cover, I'll do it. <laughs> he was extraordinarily <laughs> prolific, but we're we're working on a way to sort of break it up to make it manageable and digestible. Uh, I believe we're going to start by working with the Oxford University Press. 
uh, edition of the selected works and break it up from there. Probably do sort of earlier works first, then maybe take on Rasselas and some of the selections from the dictionary and then look at a selection of the older works. But as we suss that out, I'll be making posts on the blog, uh, which reminds me I should probably pimp the blog. Uh, (laughs) Check us out because uh, we've been trying to get a little more prolific and um, write a little bit more. Yeah. So you can – And I'll really like – Claude, you've been writing some really terrific stuff on there. I I would urge everyone to to read it. I I have a few irons in the fire that I'm gun shy. (laughs) about actually posting but i will i will uh i will gird my loins and quit procrastinating and actually put something up there because you know i, I got thoughts y'all want to hear those thoughts <laughs> I um, hear them. yeah but yeah ch- check out the blog it's uh it's uh it's, it's i think i think it's a terrific addendum or companion to the kind mm. of conversations that we have on the show so if uh so if you are a listener who enjoys these conversations i i, I don't know <laughs> A listener who who would not enjoy them, but I'm, I guess they must be out there. But if you are someone who enjoys these conversations, then the blog is definitely something that is is absolutely worth checking out. Right, you can find it at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com, and we also started an official Facebook page uh, that's mostly just postings from the blog but you can find us there and if you want to give us a couple of hits that that'd be yeah. great and if you want to rate and review on iTunes that'd be cool too but yeah that's sort of what we've been up to and we're trying to get a, a little more active in the new year so. yeah all right well Daniel always good to talk to you I, hey always a pleasure man I am uh, I'm really looking forward to Samuel Johnson uh, I'm pretty ignorant and but I'm looking forward to it because the only thing I do remember about him is his epic own of uh, Barclay's uh, radical idealism. <laughs> uh, with, you know, Barclay's idea that everything was only thought—that that's the only actual substance in the universe. And Samuel Johnson, uh, when asked how he refutes that, he stamped his foot on a stone on the road and said, "I refute it thus." And <laughs> yeah. I'm I, what, like. If for nothing else, I will absolutely read what else that guy had to say because I loved that. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm already sort of in the rush, in, in the, the weeds here, but, um, I'll just tease the listeners with this. Uh, my, my initial impressions of Samuel Johnson were, what if Montaigne but a dick? All right. Well, thank you, Daniel. <laughs> and I'll see you later. We'll see you next time, man.